0: This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Russian commanders seek to keep troops away from dangerous sections of the Internet, Cyber attacks in Finland may be a shot across Helsinki's bow. Cert UA warns of a phishing campaign. Hacktivists hit Russian organizations. Mixed reviews for U.S. preemptive measures against GRU botnets. Sharkbot infested apps have been ejected from Google Play. Johannes Ulrich from SANS on malicious ISO files embedded in HTML. Our guest is Neil Dennis from Cyware on threat intel sharing with members of the Auto ISAC and what you should do when your shields are up. From the Cyberwire Studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your Cyberwire summary for Monday, April 11th, 2022. Ukraine's Military Intelligence Service has posted a file to its Facebook account that purports to be a Russian document complaining Ukrainian online attempts to influence on historical memory and manipulate opinions and to distribute false information about events and the situation on the ground. If the document is genuine and the telegraph hasn't yet been able to authenticate it, it would also provide more evidence of disaffection and poor morale in the ranks. According to the document... Commanders of all ranks and a number of units have faced opposition from personnel expressing dissatisfaction with the conduct of the special military operation in Ukraine. The main source of such information are from the Internet. The troops' Internet use also presents, according to the posted document, an OPSEC challenge that the Russian army intends to address. They say, In light of this, the Ministry of Defense, in conjunction with colleagues at the Center for Information Countermeasures, has decided to create an interagency commission for working with personnel on the Internet, increase control of personnel and monitoring of changes in their moral, psychological conditions. Reuters reports that Duma TV, the streaming service run by Russia's parliament, has been removed from YouTube, which cited a violation of YouTube's terms of service as grounds for the expulsion. Google said in an email to Reuters, If we find that an account violates our terms of service, we take appropriate action. This frames the expulsion as a matter of compliance with applicable law, including sanctions against Russia. On Friday, as Ukrainian President Zelensky addressed Finland's parliament, Bloomberg reports that websites operated by Finland's foreign and defense ministries were disrupted by a distributed denial-of-service attack – The attack was over quickly, in about an hour, and while its timing suggests a Russian operation, Security Affairs says that Helsinki did not immediately attribute the attack to Russia. Their Ministry of Defense is investigating. Russia's war against Ukraine has made NATO membership attractive to some neutral European states, notably Finland and Sweden, both of whom, NATO Secretary General Stoltenberg said last week, would be welcome in the alliance. Ukraine's CERT has warned that a phishing campaign by the Armageddon threat group is targeting Ukrainian public authorities. The fishbait used is ironic but compelling, a document purporting to report Russian atrocities. The file has the lengthy and bureaucratic-sounding title On Cases of Persecution and Murder of Procurator's Office Officials by the Russian Military in Temporarily Occupied Areas. Armageddon is also known as Actinium, Gemarodon, and Primitive Bear and thought to represent a unit of Russia's FSB. The anonymous-associated group that styles itself Network Battalion 65, or NB-65, has deployed compromised Conti ransomware code against Russian organizations, bleeping computer reports that the group is using the first leaked version of Conti ransomware – the group said in a statement that their expanded ransomware campaign is a direct reprisal for Russian atrocities at Bukha. Quote, After Bukha, we elected to target certain companies that may be civilian-owned but still would have an impact on Russia's ability to operate normally. The Russian popular support for Putin's war crimes is overwhelming. From the very beginning, we made it clear, we're supporting Ukraine. We will honor our word." When Russia ceases all hostilities in Ukraine and ends this ridiculous war, NB65 will stop attacking Russian internet-facing assets and companies. Until then, come, we will not be hitting any targets outside of Russia. Groups like Conti and Sandworm, along with other Russian APTs, have been hitting the West for years with ransomware, supply chain hits, solar winds, or defense contractors. We figured it was time for them to deal with that themselves. A Bloomberg op-ed notes that last week's U.S. disabling of GRU command and control over malware deployed to corporate networks, while welcome as an aggressive defensive measure and while covered by U.S. federal warrants, was nonetheless a risky move precisely because of its aggressive quality. The operation involved entering corporate networks without their owners' knowledge or cooperation. The piece argues, What's remarkable about this operation is the decision to surreptitiously enter companies' computer networks. It's one thing to have the police show up to your house when you aren't at home to investigate and detain an intruder. It's another thing entirely to cart away the intruder and never tell you about it. While U.S. allies might not mind... Corporations, both foreign and domestic, could be forgiven for being alarmed at the prospect of U.S. authorities secretly rummaging around in their computers hunting for malware, even if it's for a good cause. One concern is that such actions could erode the public private cooperation generally seen as essential to effective whole of nation defense against nation state cyber attacks. In what amounts to a massive backup effort, librarians are working to preserve digital records of cultural or historical importance to Ukraine, the Washington Post reports. Other digital archives are likely to prove important in the event war crime charges are brought against Russian invaders and their commanders. Wired describes the work of an attorney in Ukraine who's archiving social media posts that recount Russian atrocities in territories they fought over or occupied. A Reuters exclusive reports that senior European Union officials were targeted by an unknown actor using spyware thought to have been developed by one of two Israeli vendors. D.D.A. Rendier, since 2019 European Justice Commissioner, is the most prominent official believed to have been affected. A small number of staffers at the European Commission are also said to have been affected. The exploit used to deploy the spyware is thought to have been forced entry NSO Group denies that its products would have been capable of the exploitation reported. The other vendor, Quadream, which is said to offer a virtually identical product, did not comment to Reuters. Recent Sharkbot Trojan infestations tracked by Checkpoint researchers and earlier noted by NCC Group as representing a new-generation Android banking Trojan have been found in Android antivirus apps distributed through Google Play. Security Affairs reports that SharkBot's code employs a geofencing feature to prevent it from executing in China, India, Romania, Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus. Google has removed the malicious apps. What should you be doing when your shields are up? Well, if you see something, say something. During the current shields-up condition, the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency has released a brief crib sheet on how organizations should observe, act, and report when they undergo a cyber incident. The kinds of activities CISA would like you to be alert for includes unauthorized access to your system, denial of service attacks that last more than 12 hours, malicious code on your systems, including variants if known, targeted and repeated scans against services on your systems, repeated attempts to gain unauthorized access to your system, email or mobile messages associated with phishing attempts or successes, and finally, ransomware against critical infrastructure. The emphasis is definitely on reporting. And finally, we end on a sad note today. Our sincerest condolences go out to Scope Security, who lost their founder and CEO last week. Michael Murray passed away on April 6th. May his family, friends, and colleagues find consolation in their grief. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security That's vanta.com slash cyber. Information sharing and analysis centers, better known as ISACs, are generally considered a success story in the security world, enabling members of industry verticals to collaborate and share relevant information on emerging threats, Neil Dennis is a senior threat intelligence specialist at Cyware and he and his team have been instrumental in partnering with the auto ISAC to help share actionable intelligence for the automotive community.
1: ISACs are what are called uh, information sharing and analysis centers. They are kind of a uh, legal conglomeration of sector specific communities. Uh, This kind of came about in the 90s uh, with some legislation around some fun things for information sharing and collaboration, right? So, FS, ISAC being the old dogs in the room, and then several others come out. But very industry specific, vertical specific. In this case, with auto ISAC, it can include things from the you know uh, companies up in Detroit, you know, like Dodge, GMC, so on and so forth, all the way down to the manufacturers producing spark plugs and floor mats, if you want to. But if you're in the auto industry as a whole, doing something for the auto industry, you now have this sharing facilitator for you for cybersecurity and other things as well.
0: You know, one of the things that strikes me about ISACs is that it's a way for folks who may be competitors to collaborate on this common task of, of making a safer community.
1: Yes. Yeah. I, I love this. So I, I've worked in an ISAC prior, many years back, and I think that was one of the fun things to see just in general, to your point, On paper, at the stock market, wherever we're at, we're competitors, obviously. We want to make the best product for whatever it is that we have, you know, best car, best truck, best spark plug, whatever it may be. But when it comes down to cybersecurity, people have really started to understand that this isn't a solo act. This isn't meant to be my company versus your company. People understand that if we're able to stop a threat at company A, we're also hopefully able to stop it at B, C, and D. And so this is very much all about community involvement, non-competitive nature, people coming together to make the security environment a much better place, thankfully.
0: Where do you suppose this is going? I mean, it seems to me like uh, ISACs have been established and and there's general consensus that they're a good thing. What's the next level here? Where where do you suspect
1: uh, we're headed? ISACs have already had the opportunities to really share with each other, like the ISAC analyst to analyst, right? So I think the next step is really solidifying that effort. I see this a little bit in some of the communities there that I talk with where the analyst at you know Health ISAC, the analyst at Auto ISAC or wherever at Pick an ISAC, they're all starting to come together on a regular basis. They're all starting to show the impact of community from their own side and not just trying to get their members to get involved, right? So I think that's kind of step one. Their own interactions are bearing fruit. They're they're showing through action, not through words alone, what it means to do this and what it means to get involved in a community um, community gathering like this. And I think that's where they're going. The other piece of this is to make this more effective, the next echelons of information sharing need to be more focused on automation and more focused on machine enabled information sharing to get out in front of whatever threats may be there and you know whether they're as simple as an IP address or as more complicated as trying to share ttp's and actual threat actor information all of that needs to eventually find its way into a more machine enabled sharing mentality with the human coming in to discuss, you know, kind of more after actions and and the insights around all that when they can, right? That's Neil
0: Dennis from Cyware. Struggling to secure on-prem apps with modern identity? Don't worry, you're not alone. And they'll hook you up with a complimentary pair of AirPods Pro. Don't miss out. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire. That's strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Johannes Ulrich. He is the Dean of Research at the Sands Technology Institute and also the host of the ISC Stormcast podcast. Johannes, always great to welcome you back to the show. Uh, Interesting thing uh, you and your colleagues have had an eye on. You've been seeing some small ISO files that have been embedded in HTML pages. What's going on here? Now, when you're thinking about ISO files, you're usually thinking about uh, DVDs, uh,
2: CDs, so fairly massive files. But Mm. really all an ISO file is, it's it's a file system um, represented as one file, so they can get relatively small. What we have seen is where we had um, malicious emails that were HTML emails, so nothing really that exciting. Uh, But inside there were links that redirected your browser to a page that then ran JavaScript. Again, nothing really that special. And this JavaScript then dynamically created an ISO file using a Base64 encoded string that was embedded in the HTML. Hmm. The Size here was tens of kilobytes, so nothing really that large as far as HTML pages go. Most HTML pages are larger than that, uh, but it bypasses a lot of protections that you may have in place.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, is do uh, most systems regard an ISO file as being fairly benign? Exactly. That's first of all, they they regard it as
2: benign, so you just download the file. And it now shows up as a disk image, just like any other ISO file would uh, on your system that you can mount by just double-clicking it. Then you have access to these files. Where this gets interesting is your operating system, if you have a Mac or Windows, it will add what's called a mark of the web to content that you downloaded from uh, the Internet. Hmm. Uh, On Windows, this mark of the web is applied only if you're using the NTFS file system uh, because you need to have actually a way to sort of uh, store this metadata with the file. But uh, now you have an ISO file that you opened. That ISO file has another file system on it. So any file inside that ISO files, they will be considered safe and local. Hmm. Uh, So uh, your system doesn't necessarily realize that these files were downloaded uh, from the internet. You may have heard, uh, I think this week, Microsoft announced that they will disable macros for a large part. And of course, um, Hmm. macros are one of the main ways how uh, malicious code runs on systems. If you're loading a file from an ISO file like this, like if this ISO file contains an Excel spreadsheet this mark of the web won't be applied and uh, this new security feature won't be applied uh, to those files. So I'm pretty sure that whoever is behind Emotet or whatever it is these days um, is
0: paying attention here and listening and uh, is going to send you ISO files next. So how can we protect against this? Should we be flagging ISO files in general?
2: You probably should flag ISO files the the hard thing is, like, you wouldn't want to detect them in the download process. And that's difficult here with all the JavaScript obfuscation that's happening. Uh, on the system itself, you definitely want to monitor what's happening uh, with ISO files. There are benign ISO files, of course, that you have to deal with, but probably less so on your normal uh, office worker workstation Um On a home system, yeah, ISO files, and you often deal with them when you're dealing like with movie downloads and such. So uh, it may be difficult to really distinguish a malicious one from uh, from a benign one.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, interesting for sure. Johannes Ulrich, thanks for joining us. That's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at the Cyberwire.com. Don't forget to check out the Grumpy Old Geeks podcast, where I contribute to a regular segment called Security. Huh? I join Jason and Brian on their show for a lively discussion of the latest security news every week. You can find Grumpy Old Geeks where all the fine podcasts are listed. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Liz Irvin, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Puru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.
2: That's cyberwire.com slash survey to
1: share your feedback now.